Hello and welcome to this, the 30th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar and this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we won't ever charge for this podcast because I'm a terrible, terrible businessman. But of course we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And the best way for you to support is simply to go and buy yourself some tickets. There's no great mystery to it there's no great magical formula it's very straightforward you buy the tickets we put on the shows everybody has a great time um if by any chance tickets are outside your reach this week or this month maybe go and check out one of the crowdsourcing websites the fundit.ies of the world the indiegogos all those ones see if there's a theater project over there looking for your support donations often start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for that support but of course there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this podcast whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or a pint or whether you're just sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting the link on Twitter or putting it up on Snapchat or Instagram or any of those other great social media platforms if you help us get the word out about the podcast we can use the podcast to help get the word out about all these great theatre artists do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes if you are an Apple user but if you're an Android dude or dudette I guess uh, these uh, episodes are of course streamable and available for direct download over at Rise productions.ie do go back and listen to all the other episodes both in this second series and the original series one from a few years back Uh, leave us a review if you can over on itunes that's a huge help to us or you can simply click to rate us on their five star rating system you might want to give us five stars while you're there i mean hey if you've taken the effort Uh, and of course as ever you can follow us on facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at rise Ireland and it's been another great week here at Rise Towers except it hasn't been at Rise Towers because we've been all over the country um, we had three spectacular nights down at the Everyman in Cork with the Good Father which was just so much fun so great to get back to the Everyman such a fantastic venue and just such a brilliant woman in Judy Keller running the place doing such a fantastic job down there really great to uh, to get the three nights there and then last night we had the great pleasure of performing the Good Father in Listowel for Writers Week um, Listowel of course being christian o'reilly's hometown and just to see st john's theater absolutely packed to the rafters and to see the entire community jump to their feet for this standing ovation at the end knowing that christian's mom was in the audience was a really special moment uh, I'm, I'm just absolutely delighted that we got to bring the play back to La Soul. Um, I think it was a, a really important one for me to get on this tour, and I'm really, really glad we were able to do it. So, uh, yeah, a wonderful night all round, and uh, hopefully now today I can get home and get to see the wife and children and check back in for a little while before we uh, finish out the tour in Bray, County Wicklow, tomorrow at the Mermaid Arts Centre, which I'm also 
really looking forward to. And so that brings us to our guest this week. And holy God, isn't this a special one? Um, it's the brilliant Alwyn Fuere. Um, I mean, where do you start with a woman as remarkable as Alwyn, who has had a career as remarkable? Um, she is someone who I have looked up to for an awful long time. She's someone who thankfully I've had the opportunity to share a stage with over the years. Just a wonderful human being all around. Um, and just a consummate artist someone who is so passionate about the craft uh, and so passionate about still investigating all the elements of the craft um, even this deep into her career she's a fantastic woman a fantastic actress let's get straight into it here she is the phenomenal Alwyn Query. the wonderful Alwyn Query. thank you so much for joining me on the podcast I'm honored and privileged to have you here Honoured to be here. Um, so ordinarily, I tend to go quite chronologically through things. I'm less interested in that this time around. I'd kind of just like to do a deep dive into you and your approach to the work and uh, and kind of your practice and stuff. But I think you've an interesting enough start in life anyway, so why don't we touch on it a little bit? Um, tell me a little bit about you growing up then. Well, I was born on the extreme west coast of Connemara, place called Ocrisbeg, a peninsula that juts out into the wild Atlantic and um, of uh, my parents were both Breton from Brittany, France and my father was a Breton activist so they kind of came here as, well my mother didn't share his politics but she was Breton as well but they came here as uh, political refugees really Okay. Uh, in the late 40s and um, and then we decided to, or my parents decided to make their life here, really. Although they went back to Brittany very often, and as a child I was there an awful lot. Okay. But, and they're both now buried in Brittany, in Gangon. Um, so they never let go of that side of their life. But for me, I was born out in Connemara and grew up there. So that's been completely my formation. So do you feel a connection more to Connemara or to the the Britney side of things or, or, or a bit of a mix of both? Uh, a sort of mix of both in the sense that I feel very formed by that part of Ireland, that extreme coast um, and, and growing up in that, in, in, in an area of such incredible kind of where the power of nature is so evident. Um, I, I feel that that's my base, that's yeah. my fundament. But um, but I do know that there is still the Breton thing, and I mean, you know, the, the various ways in which it comes comes across. For instance, uh, when I hear Breton music, I, I really feel it in my blood. I right. feel something rising, and I go, "Oh God, yeah, yeah, I recognise that." It's like something coming back from centuries, um, and it really triggers something in me. And and I think the other side of it is that even though I was born and grew up in Ireland. I, I was certainly the first 20, 25 years of my life was all about trying to become assimilated because right. I grew up in a French-speaking household out in the middle of nowhere and, and I, I so much wanted to belong to that world outside. Um, so I, I think a lot of my, um, a lot of my, my, um, my formative years was about trying to become part of this country that I found myself in knowing that I wasn't really part of it yeah language wise then what is that fusion between being raised through French in an Irish speaking area of a predominantly English speaking country do those three things kind of crash together at times well uh, that area of Connemara isn't Irish speaking okay 
Um, but obviously I had to learn Irish in school and, you know, I would hear it spoken if we went down to South Connemara or went on to the, you know, met the fishermen from there and everything. Um, so Irish wasn't such a big, big part of that. But uh, certainly um, I would say I definitely had a linguistic identity crisis okay. <laughs> when I was very small, which I still remember uh, because uh, I was, I know, I do remember very clearly being very torn between both languages. Mm and that the French was very much the language of the family and, and English was the language of out there. That's kind of how it was in my mind and, um, and how different I felt in both languages. And I really felt that the, 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 the place, the true place of communication for me was, was nonverbal, was, was the place in between. Yeah, that's intriguing. Which is exactly probably what brought me into the theatre. Yeah, well, that, see, that's yeah. the thing that intrigues me because I, I know that there are certain things... I'm, there are certain things for me that I can think or feel in Irish that there isn't a direct correlation yeah. to in English. Yeah. Do you feel like, is, are there still moments like that for you that something, there are certain things that you can express more clearly in one or the other? Or do you dream in one more than the other? Or? Yeah, there are still, yeah, there's still, uh, there are some things in French that are, are not, are not sayable or, or expressible in English. Yeah. And vice versa to a certain extent. But I have performed in French two or three different times in fact I'm going to be doing a big French project next year and that that's been a whole whole different experience as, a, as an actor because the first time I performed in French what I found fascinating was that there was less of a journey between the thought and the word okay. whereas in English I always think there's a massive journey between the thought and the word wow <laughs> yeah so, but it feels more immediate for you as you express it, it yeah it felt more immediate even though I have to struggle in French okay. now and I have to kind of get my mouth around it and train myself back into French and everything and you know it comes back and I speak French with as my French friends tell me with a Romanian accent apparently <laughs> <laughs> incredible <laughs> like a, that's speak, glorious speak French like a Romanian um but uh but there, I think it may, must go back to the whole, you know, the sounds you hear as, mm. a, as a baby, you know, the first sounds you hear, and they, they were French. Yeah. So um, I think there are, there's just less translation going on in a peculiar way. Um, however, you know, if I have to express kind of any abstract concepts in French, I find that impossible. Okay. I can really struggle with ideas, uh, talking about ideas in French, whereas I can do it much more easily in English. That's fascinating. Talk to me then about your decision to try and break into the world of theatre. How and where does that come about? It was kind of accidental, I think. As all the great ones yeah, are, I mean, say. kind of accidental. It still sort of is an accident. <laughs> I'm still going, I'm just going to do it for a bit longer. It's worked out okay for you so far, though, to be <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, I think, um, I know when I, in my, you know, school years, whatever, and when you have that whole thing of what am I going to do when I grow up, and I, I very much had medicine or the arts were the two strong things. Okay. And medicine probably stronger than the arts. Um, and it's the only reason I stayed in school that I didn't run away was because I thought, well, I need my exams to go to university. Okay. <laughs> but um, by the time I got to my leaving cert age, I was 16 when I did my leaving cert, it was kind of heading, it was 1970. And, um, you know, the... the, the the youth culture was becoming very influenced by the hippies and mm -hmm. free love and all of that kind of stuff, you know. So I became, you know, much more hippie in my outlook. So it became much more the arts. But anyway, I was too young to go to university then. And so my parents sent me to France for supposedly a year because the final year in France in school is the philo year. Okay. Where you 
study philosophy as part of your final year in school, which I think is a fantastic idea. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah. So I, I went, but it was also just post-1968. So all, all the students were interested about was, was having a strike about something. <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah, anything. <laughs> anything. So I, was, I, just, I didn't stick it out for the whole year. Um, and I don't think I learned that much philosophy either. And then, um, and then I came back to Ireland and really didn't know what I wanted to do, but felt it was definitely the arts. It was too late to apply to art school, so then I started training with an artist, a Breton artist actually, who lived out in Bray, who okay. was a friend of my father's, or one of the exiles who had come. He was much more um, right-wing than my father would have been. Okay. But anyway, he was a good man, though, you know, and um, I was very fond of him, and he was a sculptor. And so I trained with him. He was giving classes, and you could do these teacher training um, exams as part of his whole thing. But gradually, I, st- I was starting to go to theater, see some theater, and I, I, I started getting really interested in the theater. And then I thought, oh, maybe what it will be, maybe I'll become a set designer. Okay, kind of, you know, take that kind of sculptural Well, yeah, well, I, I, it actually happened when I was going to visit a friend in St. Martin's School of Art in London and okay. walked along a whole corridor, which was the set design department. Wow. And I was, I was fascinated by these model boxes. I just thought it was the most beautiful things. And I thought, God, that would be a fantastic thing to do. Um, but I didn't really pursue it. There was no outlet for it here. And then I started going to, you know, the odd... Uh, uh, acting at uh, the first acting class I went to was actually in the gate with Christopher Casson. Right. Okay. And at that time I was working on the wood key dig digging. Really? Yeah, I was working on the archaeological dig, drawing the finds and cataloging them. It was okay. a beautiful job to do. And um, so I started going. And Chris Chris Casson uh, was teaching. It was kind of like it was very old style, you know, yes. delivery. Was such a sweet, beautiful man, though, Chris. You know. And then while I was there, somebody. T- started telling me about the focus okay so then I went up to the focus and I and I knocked on the door and I met Deirdre and I said I'm interested to come and see the studio sessions and she said well you're very welcome to come in but you can't just sit and watch you'll have to take part okay so I did and that kind of went on and about six months later they asked me to play a role in something right my my job at the dig had finished because the dig was closed and so then I played part and then another part and another part. And so I was doing it for about two years before I decided to continue with it. How exciting was the focus at that time? It's kind of spoken of in mm. almost mythical terms at this stage around Dublin. It was, at that time, I think it probably had lost some of its... It was still exciting. Yeah. But it had lost a little bit. I mean, I remember the first thing I saw in the focus. It was actually the writer Mary Lavin, who was a friend of my mother's, brought my mother and me to to a show in the focus and it was uncle vanya i always remember it and every car it was like that tiny stage but it was so alive uh, every character stayed on stage and they were all under a little light and then they'd kind of emerge and play out these roles and it was a really beautiful production and uh, and i think that was a kind of a seminal one where i thought yeah. oh gosh this is quite something so i remember that very exciting one um but it still had quite a an exciting reputation but that I'm trying to work out what year that would have been when I went up there and knocked on the door it would have been 1976 I think okay. and then um, so it had lost a bit of its but it was still good yeah <laughs> yeah. and so then 
as you're ticking along gig mm-hmm. after gig and focus and stuff uh, the the dig down at Woodkey is finished yeah. at this stage are you putting the head down and going okay now maybe I've found what, what this is for me and I want to go and, and make a solid go of this I think once I'd start once once I started in the studio sessions and then when they asked me to play that role, I think I knew I was already, you know, I was going to investigate this a bit further. But actually I only did two shows in the focus and then I was asked to join the, the company in the project, which Jim Sheridan was starting. Okay. But it was like company, it was very ad hoc, you know, it wasn't sure. like, we want you for two years. It was like, come on, they own it. <laughs> and uh, so I, I did the Risen People. That was my first gig in the project. With really? Jim Sheridan and, and uh, Jim directing and... Um, so that was the, f- the very first production of The Risen People. That must have been very exciting. Yeah, it was. And, uh, and then I, s- I worked in the project for the next two, three years. Right. So I think what happened was that a year later, so I was doing two, three different shows with them, and it was all really exciting stuff. Like the place was packed with people. You couldn't, you know, it was a really amazing venue at the time. Yeah. And there was the cinema, and there was the gallery, and there was gigs, and... I, I don't know if I ever left the place, you know. I mean, we'd, we'd spend all night there partying and then we'd start rehearsing the next morning and then I don't know how we managed it. But anyway, it was wild, but it was it fantastic. It does feel that it was in, an incredibly vibrant place at an incredibly vibrant it time. Was re- it was really extraordinary. And I kind of thought it's all like this. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so I was with them for a good year and then um, uh, or more. And then I remember uh, Jim asking me to do something and... I, I kind of put the brakes on suddenly. I went, yeah, I need to. I just kind of wanted to stop and have a think. And I, I literally took some, I don't know, a month out of it, or didn't do one thing. Yeah. And then, uh, I, I had to think, and I said, well, you know, I've stuck with this for two years now, and I'd love to get proper training, but there was no training in Ireland. Yeah. I'd have had to leave, and, and I thought, well this is the way to learn really is just through doing it yeah so i literally worked as much as i could to just learn learn and so that so it was at that point that i thought i'm going to stay with this yeah. for as long as it has meaning okay for me yes. 40 years later still here. <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. not bad going yeah. um ha, in those early stages hmm. why was it chiming so well with you in terms of artistic expression that uh that, like you, you know, you talk about that that kind of world between languages and finding a physical embodiment of it. it was it was it tying into that maybe? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I think if I'd gone to a, a, a school of art, art college, I would probably have discovered performance art. Okay. And maybe have become involved with that, but I knew nothing. I didn't even know such a form existed. Yeah. Uh, but there was it was definitely something. I kind of had hit a, a bit of a wall in terms of production of artworks like painting and sculpture because I had this thing that uh, it was the process but the completion I could never accept that something was complete was finished you know it was always like it's shit I'll throw it out I'll break it up I'll burn it okay. you know it was something to do with that and there's something about theatre particularly uh, which allows you to Accept the fact that it's an ongoing process. Yes. That it's never finished. It's never a complete thing. It's always where you, how far you got. Yeah. 
and you just do everything you can to get as far as you can and you just have to have the humility to accept that it's yes, you know yeah. and and so, so i think that's what pulled me in this this feeling of this ongoing process that it was everything was a continuum and nothing yeah. was ever well, nothing was ever going to be finished <laughs> i think that's a really interesting one because i think i guess with with visual art mm. with sculpture or painting or whatever there is a point where you have to walk away yeah. and hang it on the gallery yeah. wall whereas for us night after night week after week of a run yeah. you're back reinvestigating re-exploring re-interrogating yeah. and also because with the audience changing with you changing with the cast changing it it does feel like a more living breathing um, changeable thing is that is, it, that, is that it? yeah I, th- I think so absolutely I mean I think it's I think it's kind of like life you yeah. know that each moment passes and will never come back again and you know you know that doesn't matter how you've recorded it. I mean, even with us recording this, you know, like nobody will ever really be able to relive yes. what we're living at this very moment. They'll be able to, it's kind of a recording of it. Whereas it, with live performance, I think it's so much about not just, you know, what people see and hear, but there's a whole kinetic exchange. I think it's, it's the bodies in the space that start to resonate on some kind of frequency. Yeah. And you know it when it happens, you know. You know those nights where you go, it was just electric, why? Yeah. And and you know it's not an illusion because everybody's yeah. felt it. Um, and, I, and I think it's only live work that can really make that happen, whether it's live music or it's, it's just this live experience. It's a funny thing. I think there's been a, a scientific study recently that says that... Um, that for an audience like that, their heartbeats start to synchronize yeah. as they watch the show. And, there, and as you say, there is something in that. And I think part of that magic is in that communion yeah. with the audience coming exactly. together with the artists on stage. In that, And different people find it in different ways. I always say mm-hmm. like some people get it in Croke Park on a Sunday, some yeah. people get it in Mass on a Sunday. Yeah. Uh, but for me, that there is something about those strangers congregating in that room for this shared experience. Yeah. And it is unique to the live experience because you can't reaccess that on Netflix or in a movie screen yeah. or whatever. It totally is. I mean, that's the beauty, the magic of it. I mean, you know, people talk about um, uh, theatre coming from religion, but actually religion came from the theatre. <laughs> no. It was one of the branches yes. of theatre. <laughs> you know, like High Mass and the Catholic Church. I mean, I've always, I've always kind of loved Catholicism for its mad ritual, you know, and the benediction is like total sun worship, you know, and that. Handel's Messiah and all of those incredible things um, which are so theatrical and give you that kind of communal experience yeah. but um, no, I, I think I think it uh, it very much is about that I mean you you know I, you, you just I can I can remember you know specific moments of, of that happening and, and we know you know when you're doing a show that it might never happen or it might happen four or five times in the run but you can never make you, all you can do is create the circumstances for it to happen yeah you can't make it happen yeah it's true yeah so i want to talk to you then a little bit about agency and control one thing that comes up a lot in these chats is that performers the one thing performers don't often have in this industry is agency or control over the career so talk to me about setting up your own company then over the years and having like a producing entity with which to make work. Why was that important to you? Um, first thing I'll say is that I never use the word career. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is that a, because it, it's kind of not that for me. Right. It's not a career, you know, the, the, the work is the work. And for me, it's, uh, it's a continuous exploration, the continuous journey. So... Um, and I say I don't use the word career because very often I've been 
offered a career choice. But I'll, you know, so often I'll have, I'll do the thing that nobody's going to ever know about. But that is actually part of what I see as the journey, you know, yeah. that I have to follow. Um, if that doesn't sound too airy fairy, but but uh, uh, I I never let. I never let the the factors which are counted as being something to do with career. I never let the money, the where and the when, or the role be the well. That might be part of those deciding factors, but there's a kind of an impulse that leads you yeah. along that journey, and I can't define what that is. But it's definitely not career. So okay. well, <laughs> yeah. that's, well, that's fascinating. So that's the first yeah. thing I would say is that I never use the word career. It's kind of just the work, um, uh, and in terms of agency. Um, I mean, I think the, you know, I think I knew very early on when I when I started in those times that I've talked about in the focus and in the project, I knew very much that I was working in an alien kind of world, and I was trying to again fit into this alien yeah. world with this alien language and this alien everything. But um, and I was very conscious very early on that I was interested in the nonverbal yeah. and the nonverbal communication. And um, and there were just a couple of key kind of meetings and relationships, which then triggered a sort of understanding that I could create that space yeah. where this other thing could be explored, which was not being explored anywhere that I could see in the theatre that I was seeing or in in the art that I was seeing or anything like that. You know, it's just this feeling of this got to create it's like opening a door into a room that hasn't been opened yeah. that's what it felt like so um when when that when when that became a possibility uh and it was so so when you say you know how did that come about came about from necessity or, or need i suppose just this knowledge that um there was this other field of practice that was not there anywhere therefore i had to find the field i had yeah. to I had to create the field and yes. find the field, you know. So that's how it was. So, and it was always, you know, for one particular project or, and then when Roger and I set up Operating Theatre, that came out very much out of this artistic relationship, this kind of first time I ever walked into a room with Roger. I didn't know him at all at that time. He was looking for somebody to perform one of his pieces, you okay. know, um, and uh, one of his music pieces. Like he wanted a dancer who wasn't a dancer, you know, typical Roger. Okay. And, uh, and I remember we went into that room and he played me this piece of music and I started to improvise and I remember having this immediate sense of recognition. Okay. And he had the same. And it was kind of like meeting somebody from, you know, wow, I can see his planet from my planet. <laughs> you know, it was a bit like that. Brilliant. You know, um, and again, it's that's like alien thing. But I mean, you know, that's common to everybody when they're growing up, this sense of being outside and everything, yeah. you know, um, but to me that was the uh, that was the artistic space that I really really wanted to explore so it's not unconnected to the thing you asked me earlier as well about you know straggling different cultures and straggling yeah. different languages and all that kind of stuff so I think knowing that there was a space somewhere which wasn't there yet you know that yeah. I had to create so it just went on from there and um, I never wanted it to be uh, when we set up that company I never we never wanted to be revenue funded or anything we always wanted to just be project driven so you know we'd create a project and that would you know that would be it for a few years and maybe we'd travel with that one or whatever and then we wouldn't do another one until another you know another thing came up we said god yeah oh let's let's do that one it was never so I have a bit of a thing about revenue funding because I would never want it 
as a company uh, because I just feel that becomes a sort of um, an obligation to provide certain, you know, to deliver something. Yeah. And uh, I always have to be driven by the idea or the project. No. So you'd rather wait for a, 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 an, an idea. impulse? Yeah, yeah, an impulse, yeah, always. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we were always avoiding revenue funding. <laughs> an odd approach, a unique approach, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's always just being project-based. And even then when, and after we'd done, you know, like we stopped working together for about 10 years and then we got together again yeah. for, an, for another three or four projects. And then, um, and then we were kind of wanting to go very much in different directions. So... I set up the emergency room because mm-hmm. we had operating theatre. I set up the emergency room and he set up general practice. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, um, and so the emergency room is kind of like a holding space for those ideas. And I wait until one is ready to, some of them die off. Yeah. And others are ready to go. And so once it's up and fight and fit, yeah. then I go after funding and co-producers and all that kind of stuff. What was it like to revisit that partnership after a 10-year gap? It was great, actually. I mean, it was it was very natural. It was just kind of, you know, meeting up and saying, you know, we should do something together again. Yeah, we should. I have this idea, you know, yeah. <laughs> in relation to something. Um, and it was it was like that, really. And it, and it was fine. But, I mean, you know, we're fantastic artistic partners, but we fight all the time as well. I think that's the best way, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Um, does the work feel different when the initial impulse is coming from you like that, or that, that you are producing the rabbit from that and that there is no show beforehand and then suddenly you conjure it into existence rather than getting a phone call from the Abbey to say, will you come in and play this gig? Does, it, does the process feel different for yeah. you? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does very much feel, feel different. I mean, you know, the sense of responsibility when, when, when you are making it mm. uh, is huge. Um, but um, so I, I try and I kind of say it's a little bit like when I'm working in what I would call the mainstream, it doesn't sure. that, but you know, I'm working for people. Um, I think it really develops my my craft, you know, because it, it it is about being able to work in service to something. When I'm doing my own work, I'm working in service to something, but it's something, it's something other. Yeah. It's it's not as uh, it's not it's not trying to um, it's not trying to become part of something else. It's almost like trying to expand in, into something else from one point. Yeah. So, um, so when I do my own work, as I call it, it I feel it really develops my my um, my artistic courage. I okay. suppose because it's it's dangerous and it's like you, you know you have many dark nights of the soul. You do when you're playing a role as well. But yeah. this is more like who do I think I am presenting this idea to a public. You know, yeah, well, that also that you take, you're taking a punt on yourself so that this is yeah. an idea that is worth yeah. looking at and that other people will be interested enough to come and yeah, share the yeah, experience. Yeah. And when I'm making one of those pieces, whether it's a play that I wanted to translate and create or whatever, or, or whether it's something like River Run, which is an adaptation and all that kind of stuff, uh, I, I always feel, I, I often go, well, not with River Run, actually, because that was just like a beautiful something. It gave me something. But with a lot of them, when you're trying to get it all together, say, God... Just give me a script. <laughs> just give me, just give me a script and give me a part. And when I'm doing the other thing with yeah. the script and the part, I'm going, oh god, oh, just let me go and make my own work. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's that's a really good balance. Yeah, there. I think. And, it is. and I used to feel I had to decide between one or the other. I used to feel that I had to go 
the avant-garde route, as it yeah. used to be called by other people, or, or the, or the, um, or the, or the mainstream route. And then I, and then one day I just realised how fortunate I was to have both. Yeah. Both things, you know, and I have this whole other world where I work with visual artists or with composers and everything like that, and 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 then I have all these wonderful other possibilities of working within plays or other other jobs, you know, which. Uh, I just feel very fortunate that I'm able to do both and I think yeah. that's one of the beautiful things about Ireland as well is that it allows that a lot more whereas I think there are certain I think that would be harder to do that in London Can we talk a bit about your approach to the work then when it is that more mainstream mm-hmm. stuff when the phone rings and says hey Alvin we'd yeah. love you to do this gig what is the process like for you I mean are you someone who does extensive research and academic stuff and you know interest in interrogating into the period and stuff or do you like to get on the floor and work physically is it a combination of the two are you constantly going back to scripts what's what's the process like for you it's all of those things that you mentioned but it's different for every piece as well i think but i definitely feel um uh that the floor is the most important place yeah but it's all about the preparation yes so i think your preparation before that first day of rehearsals and it doesn't have to be. Sometimes with me, it is reading a whole load of stuff or, you know, going to a country where something of that experience is playing itself out, you know, like, uh, 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 you know, if it's something to do with a conflict zone or whatever, you know, you, you, being, be, being able to physically experience being in that sort of situation and, and see it. Or, or sometimes it's, it's just... Uh, a kind of an, an immersion of, of just this knowledge that you're about to start that thing and what do you think you might need for that. So I kind of try and go in as much as possible with um, a blank canvas, but it's very carefully prepared canvas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think, I mean, as live performers, our bodies is, is such an important, it's the site of the work, you yeah. know, so... Um, I I think a lot of the work, and when you're performing it as well, I think a lot of it, for me, is working out what the preparation is. Once once you've done the rehearsals and you know you're going in to do it every day, yeah. To me, the prep is all important, and and that prep can take so many different forms. And sometimes it's difficult to work out yeah. what the preparation is. For River on my preparation, I'd go in at four o'clock in the afternoon if there was a show at eight, and that w- I would start preparing then. Um, when I was doing By the Bog of Cats, I'll never forget that because it was completely different to my normal prep. I would arrive at the half. Really? But I'd have been home in bed for sleep okay. before that. But it was like, and I thought, this is so unlike me, but this feels like the right prep. You yeah. Know? So there you go. <laughs> I, I love how it changes. Can we talk briefly about Marina then? Yeah. Um, she is a uniquely gifted and incredibly talented and exciting writer. Mm-hmm. What has it been like for you to have a kind of an ongoing relationship with her and the work? Oh, well, wonderful. I mean, you know, uh, I felt, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, those key relationships, we're very lucky to have them and mm. you can usually count them on the finger of one hand yes. in a lifetime, you know. But, um, it's you know, it's been fantastic. I mean, I think... The first time I really experienced what the diff, what what that alchemy was, I suppose, was when I did the May. Because when I was asked to do the May, I remember reading it and going, "I want to play Grandma Freyclon. I don't want to play the May. She's really boring, you know, <laughs> like this housewifey sort of, you know, giving out about everything." And um, but there was something that made me go, oh, 
but it's really, you know, maybe I should go on that journey just yeah. to find out what it is like. So, and so, so there was a resistance in it, which was interesting, you know, but when, once I went into it and uh, once it got to a certain section of, of the rehearsal and Marina gave me a couple of brilliant notes, I remember, which just unlocked something. Yeah. And I, and I, uh, and I thought to myself, I think this is the only situation where I played a role where I've kind of discovered thing, you know, I've discovered things that are so not about me, but yet there's a kind of a, an experience of it. So it was kind of like living, living another life vicariously. I can't describe it, but also a real connection with some kind of visceral power. Yeah. You know? So whether that's because she's a woman, I don't know, you know. I mean, sometimes some people would have that theory that it's, you know, the female playwright and, yeah. and thing. It could be that. But, um, but I think we have some common psychic weather as well, you know. Yeah. Um, there's the Connemara connection. There's a whole load of things, you know. And so there's, there's something that connects us beyond just, you know, it's not, it's not just about gender. Yeah, and, and uh, again, it's the, um, that thing of revisiting work mm -hmm. uh, again and again revisiting partnerships like that do you find that the relationship deepens that the understanding I mean people, people sometimes talk about a shorthand with people mm. that they work with regularly uh, does that start to creep in or is it actually more about a more fundamental thing that you know kind of that you say that the frequencies of you both kind of just yeah. mesh a bit better I think it's more about the frequencies because I, I think you know our tastes are quite different sometimes okay um, but when we work together, that seems just seems to be that connection. So, um, so I don't really know. I mean, I think, um, I think. I mean, we're planning another piece, right? Yeah, but we're this time because we've always worked in the context of an institution, yes. or you know, and about two years ago, we just sat down together. And said, Look, you know, every time we talk about working together, then that play goes off somewhere and sure. then I'm somewhere else yeah. or whatever, you know, and then why don't we just do something together? So we've been through three ideas so far, <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to ha we're going to do something, uh, whatever it is. And even just to have that conversation, you know, I mean, I think that conversation is, a, is as important as it, you know, it's, it's, it's about creating that space again for this possibility. Yeah. If it never happens, it's not the end of the world. But I, I, I've now we've now created that pocket of time and space, which will hopefully happen at some time that we'll do something together. Well, that's massively exciting from my perspective. I, <laughs> I, look, I look forward to buying a ticket for that one. Um, I want to talk to you then about when you feel it's going right. When does it feel that it's that the elements are all coalescing? Is it if you are in a particular role on a particular show in a, on a particular stage? Do you feel like it maybe if it's just you're on a run of a couple of shows back to back that are making sense to you at that time? What, I guess the question I'm really asking is what's success or what feels like success for you? Well, yeah, it's a, that's a tricky one because that's very much a felt thing first, yeah. you know? Um, I think it's the sense that you're it's, it's when you feel that you're doing that you that you've hit that you've hit some kind of again we're talking about resonances and frequencies but you, you you've, you've struggled up and down and everything and then you hit this place where you where it is leading you so I always think it's like when you're making a piece of work there's a, there's a certain point 
once you've created all those circumstances and you've done the prep and everything like that, there's a certain point where you, you feel it, it starts to lead you and you just follow it. But to get there is really hard. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's something you can't make happen. I mean, I was working with the, this is going off tangent a little bit, but um, I was working with a beautiful singer yesterday. I went down to Cork to work with her. She had asked me to help her called Karen Casey. She's kind of folk, traditional singer. And she's been doing PhD in music and she's written a whole load of very interesting text and songs and they're mixed together. And she just wanted some kind of help to, you know, stage it. Yeah. Um, and anyway, it was kind of going off one way and off the other way. And then eventually, after about an hour, whatever way we had played around, she just hit this place. And I, I swear I could, I, I, I was standing there listening to her going, oh my God, I feel so privileged for this moment. Because I could just feel that whatever work we had done had somehow something had connected and liberated her and I could feel this stuff coming out of her you know which she had been struggling with so much before yeah. and uh, so it's a bit like that when you when you hit the so to me that's the first point of success okay um, and the main point of success is when you feel you're following it's like the line of truth or whatever it yeah. is you know no matter how crazy that thing is but you're following something um, and then the second line of success is that that connects to to an audience yeah. you know which is the primary reason that you do it but it's like you have to you have to speak the language before they can hear it you yes. know is there something in the concept then of as you say working hard on the prep mm. working rigorously on the prep really to get to a point where you can leave yourself completely open to find that spark that you then follow is that is that the is that what it is that the hard work put into the first place and then leaving it very open afterwards I think so I mean I think that openness is key it's very hard to maintain of you know course. but it, it is key I mean I think I often think that it's like um, it's like building up a whole load of experience and material and it goes past the frontal lobes and lodges in the primitive brain. Yeah. And once it's in the primitive brain and all the front part is empty and clear, then, you know, you yeah. have to clear before you can do it. Yeah, get out of your own way. Yeah, to clear it all and just trust that something else is operating, you know, because I think that's, you know, uh, if, if we're operating from our heads or from our brains, we're not performing really, yeah. you know, I mean, certain things maybe where where that's necessary there's a certain element of that necessity but again it's down to when it is doing it <laughs> yeah um, it feels to me that in recent time there's been uh, a lot more screen work for you mm. how has that experience been for you well that's happened because i've decided to turn down a, a good bit of theater in the last while not out of lack of love of it just mm. that my mojo was Diminishing. I was just tired, particularly after the whole River Run thing, and then I kind of went into lessness, which was not going to be my next big thing. But then, you know, became kind of important. And then, and then there was a whole year of doing sort of projects which I had, I felt, you know, which I wanted to support, not necessarily my own things, but I wanted to support them. So I came to the end of that year, going, oh yeah, no, thank God, now I can take my forty days in the desert, as I was telling everybody, my four, I'm going to have to forty days in the desert. But of course having done that then the 
film work started coming in because you know you're not usually free for it yeah. because you're you know, the film work started coming in so I was like oh I'll do that because that's really interesting and so and then oh, I'll do that so um, there's there's elements that I absolutely love about it one is uh, you know more and more with live performance think about your mortality you know and you think no trace you know you look at the list of the four decades of stuff and you say where's all that gone you know yeah. a few people maybe remember it the odd person might have written about it yeah um and that's a painful thing it's a beautiful thing you know the, the ephemerality is what's so beautiful yeah but it's also the very painful thing about what we do i think you know and at least in film it's there is some trace however there may be one some things you don't want to trace off <laughs> that's the killer well, so it's true. a two-sided thing <laughs> i had a couple of experiences like that both in film and i remember for a, a radio thing i did and i thought oh god if i die tomorrow they'll show they'll that, play that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Do you but, find, yeah but it's been um but so i but i am i am kind of more and more interested in the in the screen work at the moment because one the way my energy is going um, because of this kind of mojo being worn out at the moment for theatre. And also, I've done so much theatre that there has to be kind of an element of just like, there has to be some other dimension that's pulling me into it, you yeah. know. And um, with film, I have so much to learn. Okay. So it's like, well, I'll do it for the experience sometimes, you know, just, just so that I can learn, because it's a completely different kind of craft. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are certain elements that are common, but... It is a completely different kind of craft. And I'd love to get to a point with film where I'm not kind of thinking about how am I going to do this, you know? Yeah. And, and I, well, I wonder, is that the right way to do that? You know, I'd love to get to a point where there's more assumed, you know, the craft is kind of more in my, in my body, like it, it, it would be for theatre, where yeah. I can walk in and go, yeah, no, no, I, I don't think I should do that. You know, yeah. in film, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, do you enjoy the process of it? It depends entirely yeah. on the whole, on the on the material, on the team. Um, I mean, I did this fascinating film uh, recently in filmed it in Belgium with this uh, director, amazing guy called Panos Cosmatos, who made a film ten years ago called Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I saw and it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Right, and this film called Mandy premiered in Sundance just been to Cannes and it's kind of like a I described it as art house heavy metal movie <laughs> and it is kind of that and the role was really it's like way out there people you know like sort of demented kind of people and and um and I loved working on it because I could feel the power of Panos's imagination just kind of really like trippy oops Jesus Christ sorry a little trippy imagination you know and um, uh, and then uh, I couldn't go to see it in Sundance but I went to see it in Cannes a couple of weeks ago and it's a fantastic film it's really good I mean it's it's very genre film but it's sort of beyond the genre as well it's a really beautiful film yeah. um, very violent loads of blood and everything <laughs> uh, um, but I was kind of I was looking at my role and I'm going oh yeah it's kind of disappointing because if I knew that was going to happen there I'd have done that there and if I knew this, so I was a bit I felt a little bit disappointed in my work on it after I'd seen it so I don't know you know I yeah. mean when I did The Survivalist I was very happy with that um, and that's a very special film anyway yeah. for me and, and uh, I was very happy with the work on that although I'm just remembering that there was a scene that was really crucial and that we didn't get. We didn't get it right. And I think it's kind of 
I, I still feel the loss of that, you know. Is that getting back to the, the old visual art thing of in the way that you walk away from a painting or a sculpture, you do ultimately have to walk away from a film and it's yeah. then down on celluloid. And so is there a difference in your approach to the necessity to achieve perfection where that pressure maybe isn't there so much with live work? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think there's more of a pressure to achieve a certain something. Um, and you have to, you, again, I mean, I, I suppose it's when it's not, when you're not the person making the film. Yeah. If I was making the film, I might have that more. But uh, you're not the person making the film. You, you actually have to walk away and go, oh, fuck, that was, and they've got to keep that scene and it's crap and blah, blah, blah. Or they'll probably cut it. You know, and it's a killer. That's a yeah. killer. But I am really interested in directing a film now. I, I realize, you know, every time I'm watching a film, I'm going, yeah, maybe that's that will be the culmination of everything, the visual art yeah. and the performance and everything, you know, into directing a film. But I also have a kind of a very lazy side to me, which really doesn't want to be involved with all the money thing and the producing thing, and the with, which for film is massive, yeah, you know, of course. and the the mandatory two hundred people, which I don't think are mandatory at all, you know, that kind of stuff <laughs> to do everything, you know. Yeah. But I, I would be, and I, and I was actually approached recently by Lucy Smokes. Um, do you know the circus company, Lucy Smokes? No, you don't know. Yeah, this is yeah the I know. I, I, I've never seen their work, but apparently it's wonderful. And I happened to meet one of the directors, and they've been on to me about maybe, they're, they're thinking of doing a few little shorts, and they're on to me about directing a, a circus wow. short. And I thought, I'd love that. So that who knows? It might happen. <laughs> As you look back on the decades at this yeah. stage of the work, are there moments that stand out for you, either of we really captured something there, or moments where you felt you particularly learned something, or are there are there any, are there iconic moments or standout moments for you as you look back on the career? Yeah, there are. I mean, there are there are a number, um, and you know, I'd, I'd probably it would probably take me a while to go through them in any kind of chronology. But I mean, I, I'd probably mention two or three. Um, I, I remember the first full show that I did with Roger, which was Aidan Matthews' script. It was called The Diamond Body. Right. And that was 1984 we premiered that. And um, it was continuous musical score, very cinematic kind of presentation. And uh, I played a, 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 an androgynous kind of character. I've always been interested in that intergender idea and explored it quite a lot in different ways and but that was the that that production so I played basically I played a man who was undergoing uh, surgery to become hermaphroditic to become both okay and and the the story that he's telling us and he's speaking from some kind of place of crisis possibly a, a conference or something from a in a clinic in a transgender clinic in Casablanca so you get lots of the mosquito sounds and lovely. <laughs> yeah, the crickets all the way through. It was lovely. <laughs> it was really beautiful, actually. Um, beautiful kind of world that was constructed around it. And um, and he is telling a story about his lover who was murdered for being a hermaphrodite, hermaphroditic. And his lover was murdered by the people on this island who thought that he was a bad omen. And, you know, so it was all about the outsider. And it was a little bit like suddenly last summer. You know, it had all touches of those kind of stories and films um, and that was a really key moment because I, I just remember whatever way that I that that we started to work with it it was very I suppose that acting style for want of better was very very not like anything 
that was going on yeah time but it was one that I really was interested in pursuing and so that's a key one and it was very successful we went to London with it was invited to London and to Glasgow and then I did it in France in French French and English on alternate nights <laughs> oh lord oh, I lost about a stone I see, you don't, you don't <laughs> have to make things hard on yourself wow oh Jesus I'll never forget that flew over to Avignon uh, do one night in French one night in English playing at midnight every night which was perfect time for it and um and then after the two weeks, I flew directly to New York, where Druid was doing its first ever show in America. Wow. Where I was taking over the role of, of Peggy and Mike from Breed Brennan. <laughs> and I'd had about 10 days rehearsals with hardly any of the cast. Seems fine. That seems perfectly sufficient. <laughs> and two nights later, in front of 2,000 people. Opening. Wow. I'll never forget that. How did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's remarkable. Yeah. Incredible. Oh I love it. As you look to the future then, mm. what still excites you uh, about the work? What do you still want to chase after? Um, I think, you know, anything that... I mean, there's the, there's, it's the challenge of going to those, that, those extremes of, uh, of one's vision and imagination, you know... I, uh, I think. I mean, I, I think of art and performance generally as being this space which is pushing against the walls or against the boundaries of our reality all the time. You mm. know, it's like creating another. It's it's envisioning other realities, which is the most radical thing. You know, and and I think it's one of the last radical spaces we have actually yeah. to alter. Uh, consciousness, reality, thinking, culture, everything. So, so that that's kind of at the back, you know. But I mean, it's not like I go every time something comes up. I go, oh, I'm doing this. I, I'm, I'm, but I know that that's informing a lot of it. But I think, I think, I think, you know, uh, it has to. I have to feel that it's a challenging piece for myself and for and for a public that. Um, that it's going to affect some kind of transformation or that I would hope that it would affect some kind of transformation and that whatever I do, that myself and the audience are altered by it in some way. Hmm. That, I mean, I will say my, I think my, I'm very, if, if I was to write a, some kind of thesis on theatre, I would call it the theatre of disturbance because I'm really interested in that place of disturbance so that you know that that you don't need to know what it is or anything like that but when and I experience that as a as an audience as well if I see something that I go I don't know what the fuck that was <laughs> but I can't stop thinking about yeah. it you know that I think so I'd like to be doing that kind of work that sounds very good to <laughs> yeah. me well I have to say not only have I had incredibly happy times uh, being in shows with you, I've had incredibly happy times watching your shows. I look forward to watching many more over the years to come. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time oh, to join me today. Thank you, Angus. Thank you. So there you have it. The brilliant Alwyn Ferry. Such a privilege to spend the hour with her. So great to catch up. Haven't seen her in a long time. Um, and so brilliant to do that kind of deep dive chat into her process and how she navigates the work i just uh, she's brilliant i can't say enough amazing things about her so great to have her on the podcast i feel really really privileged that we 
we finally managed to get her on. And so, look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings-on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre, they have Ulysses coming up, and up at the gate, they're about to finish up with Assassins, starring Kate Gilmore and, of course, Rise Productions regular Rachel O'Byrne. At the Board Gosh Energy Theatre, it's An Officer and a Gentleman, and that'll be followed by The Last Ship. At the Mermaid out in Bray, it is your very, very last chance to catch The Good Father from Rise Productions. Do not miss out on that one. At Theatre Upstairs, they have The Rose of Jericho, and in uh, Temple Bar at the New Theatre, they have The Harvest coming up soon. Smock Alley has Love a la Mode, and at the Civic out in Tala, they have From Under the Bed. At the Pavilion, uh, they have A Spoonful of Sherman. They also have Potter Potts' Guide to Walking, and also From Under the Bed coming up. Uh, at Driacht in Blanche, they have Weighing In. At the Viking in Clontarf, it's Under the Bed, and that'll be followed by Buridan's Ass. Uh, Bewley's Cafe Theatre in the lunchtime slot has Molly, and at Project Arts Centre, it's Jesse Jones, Tremble Tremble, featuring none other than Alwyn Fuere. Uh, at the Everyman down in Cork, they have a spoonful of Sherman, followed by Asking For It, which I'm so looking forward to catching. Uh, and then at Galway's Town Hall Theatre, they have Shout, which has been doing the rounds all around the country. Uh, at Limerick, uh, in they have Micro Disney coming up at the Bell Table. And up north at the Lyric in Belfast, it's Lovers by Brian Friel and also the Vagina Monologues. So look, that is us. That is episode 30 in the books and what an episode it was. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Bye.